0: Our sermon today is taken from Acts 1, 1 through 11. This is the word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Thus says the Lord.
1: All right, good morning again, friends. Uh, Today we're going to be starting, uh, it's the first day, in our next sermon series through the book of Acts, which means we're going to start today to preach the whole book of Acts from the very first verse to the very last verse so that we get the full picture and the whole context of what God is trying to tell us here from, from this book. Um, Before we start the sermon series, I did think that it would be helpful for us to just talk about and for me to explain what is the overall general theme of the book of Acts. Okay, what's it about? Well, the book of Acts, just generally speaking, is about Jesus Christ continuing his ministry here on earth through incompetent people like you and I by sending us the Holy Spirit. All right. Let me repeat that. The book of Acts is about Jesus Christ continuing his ministry here on earth through incompetent people by sending to us the Holy Spirit. So that's going to be the overarching kind of theme uh, that hopefully will stay in your mind as we study this whole book. And also it is the overarching application. Okay. If you're a Christian and you're here listening to this, God, through the book of Acts, is calling you to participate in the Holy Spirit's work and to live out the gospel, to preach the gospel to whoever is around you. All right. So that's the theme, that's application. And if you want to be able to do that, if you want to be able to live out God's call for you here, this is what our first passage, I think, is is about. There's at least three things that you got to see if you want to be Jesus' hands and feet. To the people around you, long term, consistently. Okay, you got to see these things from verses one to eleven. First, you got to see Jesus' presence in you. Second, you got to see Jesus' spirit maturing you. And third, you got to see Jesus' sovereignty over you. Okay, Jesus' presence in you, Jesus' spirit maturing you, Jesus' sovereignty over you. So let's let's begin in our first point: Jesus' presence in you. Okay, so uh, it's important that we. Uh, explain who it is that wrote the book of Acts, okay? And it's Luke, the guy who wrote the gospel of Luke. How do we know that? Look at verse 1 of our passage. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, so we know here that this book is directed to this guy named Theophilus, and the only other book in the Bible directed to a guy named Theophilus is the gospel of Luke. Okay, so the gospel of Luke is this first book Um, that's mentioned here, that Luke wrote to Theophilus, and the book of Acts is the second book that Luke wrote to Theophilus. And and it says here that the first book, Luke began to, uh, to, uh, told Theophilus all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what he said in verse one. So think about that for a second. What's the implication here? If the first book is about all the things Jesus began to do and teach, what's the second book about then? What's Acts all about? Well, what's implied here is that the second book is about all the things that Jesus will continue to do and teach, right? That's, that's the implication. The first book is about everything Jesus began to do and teach. The second book is about everything Jesus will continue to do and teach. That's what the book of Acts is about. And, you know, you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, what's the big deal? Luke wrote two books. The first one is about things Jesus began to teach, and the second one is about the things Jesus will continue to do and teach. Okay, I don't see anything profound about that. Well, what's profound about that is that, remember, in the second book, Jesus isn't physically in the story anymore, right? We just read it. He ascended to heaven. He's not physically here anymore. So think about that. If he's not physically here, how can he continue to do and teach things? And there's the rub, right? Luke gives us the answer in verse two. This is how he does it. In the first book, of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, that's the message of the book of Acts. Luke is telling us that when Jesus was taken up, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he continues to do and teach things on earth, not physically, but by sending the Holy Spirit into the lives of his disciples, and moving them to be his hands and feet to continue to do his work. Okay, now stick with me here. I do think it's important for us to get to the details on this, okay, on the relationship between the ascended Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work here on earth. Okay, what relationship does Jesus have with the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to attempt to use an analogy here to explain this, all right? But I warn you, it's far from perfect. And if you want to try and poke theological holes in it, you're going to be able to do that very easily. Okay. So, so please take this analogy with a grain of salt. But here it is. Imagine a young prince, okay, who was faithful, who loved, cared for, and protected his people perfectly. Okay. This young prince did everything right. And because of that, one day he earned the right to ascend to the throne and he got coronated, right? He got inaugurated as as king. Now, at that moment, when he was inaugurated as king and he ascended to the throne, at that moment, he as king can now continue to do what he did, namely to love, care for, and protect his people. But now, as ascended king, he can do it in a much more widespread way. Why? Still following? I hope you are. Because after he's ascended as king, He now has authority and power over his servants and soldiers who are spread out throughout his kingdom. Okay, they listen to him now, they do his will now. So now, instead of having to physically go somewhere to help one of his people in faraway lands, all he needs to do is command one of his soldiers or servants that are already there to help them for him. Okay, so now he can help multiple people in multiple locations. Simultaneously, if he wants to. Okay, here's the connection. Jesus was fully faithful, the Bible says, right? He loved, cared for, and protected his people perfectly. He did everything right. And because of that, he ascended and he earned the crown of life and he ascended into heaven. And that, in some sense, was his coronation. It was his inauguration. He is king now. That's what Luke is saying. That's what the Bible says. And now, as inaugurated king, he has the power to send the Holy Spirit to and fro, here and there, everywhere, anywhere, so that he can continue to do what he previously did on earth to love, care, and protect his people, but now in a much more widespread way. That's the relationship between the ascended king Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit. So what Luke is trying to say here in the first two verses is that the fact that Jesus isn't physically here anymore, it doesn't mean that we have less of him. It actually means the opposite. It means that we have much more of him through the presence of the Spirit. You know, and where does the Bible say over and over again, the Spirit is not just around us, not just above us, not just amongst us Christians, but inside of us. So here's what's I think really practical about this truth. The disciples here can be locked up in a dungeon in Rome somewhere. Underground, keys thrown away. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No one can take Jesus away from them anymore because his spirit will be there with them, in them. Or his disciples can be locked up in an apartment in Jakarta, Indonesia somewhere on Sunday, July 4th, 2021 because a second wave of a crazy pandemic just hit. It doesn't matter. Nothing can take Jesus away from you anymore because His Spirit is in you. And look, you've got you to gotta be able to see this. If you don't see this reality, you won't have the encouragement you need to live out the gospel for very long towards people around you because you'll crumble. You'll break down under the weight of life's hardships. One of my favorite analogies about the Holy Spirit being in us. It's by a preacher who, who used a Lord of the Rings analogy. And there's this part of the story, Lord of the Rings, right, where Frodo, the main character, was about to go on a dangerous journey. And Bilbo, his uncle, gave him what one of his most treasured possessions. And it was a body armor called the mithril, okay? And the mithril is like this silver golden undershirt, right? And it's placed inside of Frodo's outer, raggedy, torn-up shirt. okay, and You can't see it. You can hardly feel it. It's as light as a feather, but it's harder than dragon scales, Bilbo said. Right? So it's, it's under, it's in his outfit. Sure enough, in his journey, Frodo got stabbed by the spear of an orc, okay? And it went through his shirt, and it hurt him a bit, but it never struck through The mithril, that's inside of his shirt. It stopped the blade from piercing all the way through. Friends, Jesus Christ gave you his most treasured possession. That's the Holy Spirit. And it's in you. And from the outside, you can't see it. And you can't feel it either. It's lighter than feather, right? But it's harder than dragon scales. And look, life's going to stab you. Here and there, like a second wave of a pandemic that we thought was gone. It's a big stab for a lot of us, and you may get hurt. I'm not saying you won't get hurt. What I'm saying is this. You're much more sturdier than you think you are. You're much stronger than you think you are. You have no idea what's in you, what Christ has clothed your soul with when he ascended on high. You have the spirit in you. Life will hurt, it may even hurt a lot, but it won't pierce all the way through, it can't. The spirit of Christ dwells in you, you see. He's with you, nothing can take him away. You gotta see that, you gotta understand that, you gotta treasure that, or else you won't last as somebody who lives out the gospel to the people around them. Now, as we move on to our second point, here's a question I hear a lot. You know, that's an encouragement or encouraging promise from Jesus, but how can you tell that the Holy Spirit's in you? You know, if you can't see it, you can't feel it, how, how can you tell? How, how can you know that the ascended Christ has sent his Spirit specifically to you? What does that feel like? What, what are the signs? Let's go to our second point, Jesus' Spirit maturing you. Okay, let's continue in our passage, verse four to five. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but ye will be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days from now. There it is. That's that's the answer, right? Jesus said the disciples will soon be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And the event that Jesus is talking about here is the Pentecost, okay? And the Pentecost will happen in Acts chapter 2, which is exactly 10 days from the events of our passage today. And that's when the disciples are filled will be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is really, really important to understand because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this passage. This doesn't mean, however, um, that you're not filled with the Holy Spirit if you don't experience what the disciples experienced in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost. Because, you know, I think that's what a lot of Christians think being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. It looks like. What the disciples experienced in Acts chapter 2 it looks like you're speaking in tongues and you're prophesying and, and all this kind of stuff. If you don't experience that, then you're not filled with the Spirit. I want to propose to you that that is a, is a misunderstanding of what Jesus meant here, okay? The experience that the disciples experienced at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that wasn't meant to be a repetitive experience for all believers everywhere. It wasn't. Why not? Let me explain, okay? so So back to my mediocre analogy earlier, okay, of, of the prince that became king. Go back now to your mind to that coronation day, right? The prince ascended to the throne, Jesus' ascension, right? And when the king gets coronated during inauguration day, on that day, what happens? There's a big spectacle that happens, right? There's a big declaration, a big party. His soldiers get on their horses, and they go out of the palace, and they blow the trumpets out loud, and they shout, we are under his orders now. And that's what happened at Pentecost. It's Jesus ascending to the throne and the Holy Spirit making a public spectacle of it, saying, I'm under his orders now. I do what he says. Now, here's the thing about coronation celebrations like this. It's not meant to be repeated over and over again. It's meant to happen once at Coronation Day. Okay, but some of you may be thinking, hold on a second. Weren't there multiple events like this in the book of Acts? Didn't this kind of like outpouring of the Spirit happen repetitively, repetitively through the book of Acts? And doesn't that mean that we're supposed to kind of expect an experience like this to happen to us also today? No, we're not. Why not? Because although, yes, you're right, there are multiple events like this that happen in the book of Acts. However, they weren't random events that just kind of sporadically happened. Okay, they weren't. They were done very methodically by God to communicate a specific message for us. What message? Well, let me show you first where these events happen in the book of Acts. Okay, the first one happened in Jerusalem, which was the Pentecost that we just talked about in Acts chapter 2. That was by far the biggest one. The second one, a much smaller one, happened in the Judea and Samaria area, right? So, Jerusalem and the Judea-Samaria area, that's Acts chapter 8. And there's another small one that happened in Acts chapter 10 to 11 in a place called uh, Caesarea which is just outside of the regions of, of Israel. And that's it. That's, that's all the places that happened in, in these three different locations. First in Jerusalem, the big one, and then a smaller one in the Judea Samaria area, and then a third one in Caesarea, which is north of all that, all those places. Now, why did I say earlier this was done methodically by God to communicate a message to us? Because, go to verse eight of our passage today. I would actually encourage you to go there to see I'm not lying. What does Jesus say to the disciples there? He said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those are the three exact places where the Holy Spirit is described in the book of Acts, recorded by Luke, these places, by the way, to break out, the Holy Spirit broke out in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and in Caesarea representing the rest of the world outside of Israel. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10 to 11. These spectacles that the Holy Spirit did throughout the book of Acts were not sporadic, uncontrollable outpourings that will continue to happen at random throughout time for all Christians everywhere. It's not. They're coronation, one time coronation celebrations methodically placed to declare that the presence of of God now is available through the cross event that happened in Jerusalem to all tribes, tongues, and nations to the end of the earth, termasuk Indonesia. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. Jesus is declaring his sovereignty over all the earth, over all cultures, all nations, starting from the cross in Jerusalem to you here in Jakarta today to the ends of the earth. So let's, let's get practical here, because if you've been a Christian in Indonesia for any amount of time at all, okay, this can get very practical because many of you, you've experienced a tremendous amount of guilt for not having experienced this experience that the disciples experienced during Pentecost. And you think you haven't experienced that, you know, because you haven't experienced it, because you haven't spoken in tongues, because you haven't had all these experiences, that means there must be something wrong with you. That means you must not be a mature Christian you know, or you, you don't have enough faith. Some would go as far as saying that means you're not saved, you're not, you're not a Christian. So you try and you try and you try and you try to be good enough, you know, to have enough faith so that you experience the second baptism of the, of the Spirit or, or whatever people call it today, that the disciples hear in the book of Acts of Spirits. But you never do, you never experience it the way they did. Why not? It's not because you're not good enough, it's not. It's because you were never meant to experience it. The way God made all this happen in the book of Acts made it clear these were not random, repeatable Christian experiences that's meant to be experienced by every Christian. These were one-time celebrations declaring the sovereignty of Christ through the Holy Spirit to every culture, tongue, tribe, and nation on earth starting from the cross event that happened in Jerusalem. Okay, so I'm sitting in my apartment or in my room, in my house in Jakarta, Indonesia, 2021, and it's best baby. right? How can I know that the spirit is in me then? You know, because if it doesn't look like it's these crazy events and acts where people speak in tongues and stuff, how do I know what the spirit, the presence of the spirit looks like? Because I really need to know. I really need to know right now. Okay, this pandemic is killing me. My family's driving me crazy. My life feels like it's falling apart left and right. How can I be sure that Jesus will keep me through his spirit? Well, here's the answer. You can know that the spirit is in you, not by the presence of the spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues and things like that, but by the presence of the spiritual fruit in your life. Remember the list in Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's how you know the Spirit's in you, if you're growing in these characteristics. And that's what happened with the disciples. They slowly grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Look at how they started off here in verse 9. Look at how they're presented in verses 6 to 9, sorry. When they first received this call from Jesus, right, they were terrible people. They had really bad character. Look at at how they're presented in in verse 6. Right after Jesus said he's gonna send the Holy Spirit to continue his ministry on earth through them, here's, what the, here's the first thing the disciples said. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice that they only cared about Israel. A commentator pointed out here that disciples were being ethnocentric here, which is just a fancy word for being racist. <laughs> like really, that's, that's all you can think of? Just your own people? Like be damned with everyone else, you know? When are you going to save us, Lord? Terrible. And on top of that, they ask, will you at this time save us? Not only were they being racist, they were being impatient. You're going to save us, just us now, right? (laughs) And Jesus responds in verse 7 to 8, don't worry about when I'm going to come back and fulfill all this. You know, till then, be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's like the disciples were saying, this is for me now, Right? And Jesus responded, oh my goodness, no. (laughs) Think about the rest of the world. Think about everyone else too, until I say it's time. They were self-centered, they were impatient, but also they were slow to act. Look how the two angels at the end of the passage here spoke to them, right? Jesus ascended to the sky, and the disciples were kind of staring at the sky. Jesus left, and they're just kind of like confused and staying there. And two angels appeared, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This was actually a small rebuke. The angels were kind of saying, snap out of it. What are you doing? Go. Do what he told you to do. Go back to Jerusalem. You see, they were ethnocentric, they were impatient, and they were slow to action. But oh my, how they changed. They did. Just read the rest of the Bible, how they grew. Read the content of their writing, right, at the end of their lives. Read First and Second Peter. Read the book of James. They were completely different people. They were much more loving, joyful, peaceable, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. And that, friends, is how you know that the Holy Spirit is present in your life. It's by the fruit of the Spirit. Is the fruit of the Spirit present in your life? Are these characteristics growing in your life? You see, you want to know how much the Holy Spirit is in a Christian. Don't ask their church friends how much they speak in tongues. Ask their wife how patient they are at home. Then you'll know. So let's summarize a bit here, okay? I hope you see, don't you see, all the wonderful things that Jesus is claiming to be true about you right now, because the Spirit is in you, okay? You're much sturdier than you think you are, and you have a ridiculous amount of potential for change. You do, because the Spirit's in you. So have hope, have hope, yes, even now, even in times like these. And look, if if you wanna thrive as someone who lives out the gospel and and continues to be Jesus' hands and feet throughout this pandemic, right? And through other difficult seasons of your life that you're gonna face, then you gotta see all this. You gotta see Jesus' presence in you, okay? You gotta see Jesus' spirit maturing you. And lastly, you gotta see Jesus' sovereignty over you, which is our last point. Okay, so let's, let's move on to the last part of the passage. I got to warn you, the last part of the passage, it is, it's kind of trippy, okay? It is, because what we see here is that Jesus leaving his disciples, how? By ascending to the sky, right? And then verse 9 says, a cloud kind of enveloped him and took him out of their sight, okay? And and it's a trippy image, but I think a lot of people miss the image here and the meaning, the symbolism behind all this theatrics, okay? Because I think what we often picture happening here, and and if, if you're Asian like me, you're, you're probably gonna get this reference, I think, okay? What we picture here is like Songoku, okay? Riding a cloud. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know the guy from Dragon Ball? That's right, I made a Dragon Ball reference, okay? Um, it's like Songoku. You know that guy? Uh, it's based on an, actually an Asian uh, legend of Sun Wukong, the monkey who travels on, on a cloud. And that's what I think we picture here. A lot of people picture like this cloud came and swooped Jesus off his feet and it takes Jesus up so high until he's kind of out of sight. You can't see him anymore. But that's not the picture here. And, and missing the right picture can be misleading because if, if that's what we imagine, okay, Jesus moving up from the first floor, you know, and, and a cloud took him kind of to the 50th floor, like high up and we can't see him anymore. You know, like an employee gets promoted. You know, his office was in the first floor, and then he, he's now on the 50th floor because he's the boss now. He has more control and authority now. You're not going to get quite the right picture, okay? Here's the actual picture, and I'll explain to you why that's significant later. Read verse 9 again. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Okay, so he was lifted up before the cloud came. And then after he was lifted up, then a cloud came and kind of... Kind of enveloped him in in the cloud and he was gone. He disappeared out of their sight. Now I promise this is important, okay? Jesus here is not portrayed as just moving up to a higher geographical location. That's not where he went, that's not where heaven is. It's not like he was on the first floor, then he went to the fiftieth floor. No. What's being communicated through this picture is that Jesus went to a whole different realm altogether whose realm? God the Father's realm. Okay, what does the cloud symbolize? Remember in the Old Testament, the cloud is all about God's presence, right? Think about the glory cloud that kind of hung over the temple. Think about the the cloud pillar that guided Israel uh, through the desert. Okay, Jesus here went to God the Father. And where is that? Well, it's not on the 50th floor, like a promoted employee who's now boss. And, And look, some of you are listening to this, and your CEOs, right? your directors, and you know that if you're a boss of a company, you do have some control over your, over your company, but you don't have full control, you see? You don't have full sovereignty. Your employees are still gonna do things you don't want them to do. You can't control how the market's gonna work. You can't control some of these things, right? You're not utterly sovereign. And that's not the picture here. Jesus didn't just get moved up to become the boss, but it's more like Jesus, Um, was a character in a book that got sucked out to the realm of the author. And that's a big difference. So imagine, you know, Romeo from the play Romeo and Juliet, right, from that story. Romeo gets, you know, slurped up and moved from the realm of the story he was in to the realm that Shakespeare is in, the author, where he lives. And now Romeo sits not in the boss's chair, but in Shakespeare's chair. You see, now Romeo has utter sovereign control over every single detail of the story. He's not just in the boss's chair, he's in the director's chair. He's in the author's realm. He's in the narrator's seat. And because of that, he has control over every single paragraph, every single sentence, every single word, every single comma, every single dot in the story where the plot goes, how long the pandemic lasts, the circumstances of our lives, and when we die. He has utter control over every small detail because he's in the director's seat. He's in a whole different realm. That's what this picture of the ascension of Christ is meant to communicate. Utter sovereignty. Now. Does it scare you? Should it scare you that someone has that much control over your life? It should, it should. But here's the last thing I wanna point out from this passage. You need to see here the full picture of what the disciples saw at this time, okay? And there's a theme here in this passage that I haven't really explored and it's a theme of Jesus' physical body. Okay, that's a big theme here. Look at at verse three. It says, uh, when he resurrected, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. Okay, and then verse 4, Jesus stayed, literally there in the Greek, Jesus ate with the disciples. So a lot of these things are emphasizing his physicalness, his his physical body. And what Luke is trying to do here is trying to help us visualize the physical body of Jesus. Why? Because. Okay, take a second to picture Jesus' resurrected body right now. What does Jesus' resurrected body look like after the resurrection? What were the proofs that he gave the disciples here mentioned in verse 3? Remember, doubting Thomas? He didn't believe the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus said, come, put your fingers where? On my side, where the spear struck me at the cross. Look at the holes in my hand, put your fingers through them. These are the hands that were nailed to the cross. Now this really informs our understanding here, because when the disciples saw Jesus get sucked up to the realm of God the author, into the realm of the narrator and the story. What did they see? Who got sucked up in there? Who's now sitting at the narrator's seat? It's the person whose body still bears the wounds of the cross. The person sitting at the narrator's seat is their friend who served and loved them to the point of death even death on a cross. (sighs) That's the person who rules the universe now. So have courage, Christians. Yes, even now, amidst the second wave, have courage. Your dearest friend, the one who gave his own life up for you, the one who still bears the wounds of the cross, he's the one sitting at the director's chair. so snap out of it would you christian no one's ever promised that you're not going to get stabbed in life but even if you do remember you're much sturdier than you think you are your potential for change is much greater than you think it is and the one who controls the universe loves you so much more than you could ever dream Snap out of it, would you? I know this pandemic is hard. I know the second wave is discouraging. And it's hard to live out the gospel as Jesus would have right now, you know, to your spouse, to your kids, whoever else you're in communication with. But that's the call and it doesn't change. And you have the power to do it in you. You're stuck at home, fine, live out the gospel to your family, to your parents, you know, to your coworkers at Zoom. I know it's been hard, but you're much sturdier than you think you are because the Holy Spirit's in you. I know you've made mistakes, but that's okay. You have an amazing potential for change because the Holy Spirit's in you. And I know that some things right now may seem unredeemable. Have courage for the one who died for you is sitting at the director's chair. So get up. Take courage, snap out of it, and continue to live out the gospel as Jesus would have to whoever it is you can live it out to right now so that all the world will know and see that Jesus is King. Do all of this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we admit that we're limping, we're just trying to survive, we're just trying to get through the second wave of the pandemic. It took the air out of our lungs. it It is discouraging. It was definitely a stab. I pray that you remind us of the reality of the spirit, that you're now sitting at the throne of the universe. You are now the narrator, the actor, I mean, the, the director, you're, you're deciding how things go. And you also, the enthroned, ascended king, you've commanded your spirit, you have authority over the spirit and you've, you've graciously put him in our lives. Your spirit, help us, Father, see this reality and help us get up, help us live with the same power um, that shook Mount Sinai as it is in us. Let us live with that now, yes, even in times like these. We pray, Father, you be gracious to your church, build us up, empower us, spur us on forward to live out the gospel so that not only all of Jerusalem or Judea and Samaria, but Caesarea, and the ends of the earth, just Jakarta, Indonesia, would see you are king by the way your people love one another and love others.